0: Hello and welcome back to Showing Up Messy. This is the podcast about the messy parts of the creative process and showing up before we feel ready and in the true spirit of showing up messy, I am showing up really late, just like so late in releasing this podcast episode. Um, and I just want to say that because I not in an apologetic way, but just in acknowledging... The fact that I feel some shame about having recorded this episode over two months ago. And now I'm finally releasing it. But I also just want to acknowledge in my own creative process that I've sort of been feeling this creative constipation (laughs) with the podcast because I've had so much input, wonderful input. I'm really excited to release this episode and share it with you. And also, thank you so much for listening. I really mean that. Thank you for listening because I think it probably means you believe in me or you like the person that I'm interviewing or you are just a curious person because, and this sparked your curiosity. I'm just happy you're here. So thank you so much for being here, really. Um, Actually, by remembering that I'm talking to a person, I feel very much less alone. Um, But so to just share how I've been feeling, um, I've been traveling for about two and a half months. And my intention was to be releasing an episode every week and taking people along my journey with me. And what's really happened is I've been recording at least an episode a week, and it's just been sitting on my desktop waiting to be edited and released. And this has created creative constipation uh, for me. And I just need to take a suppository. Okay, this is very graphic. But basically, I need to let let things flow out. And it, it definitely has to do with perfectionism. You know, like, oh, okay, great. I'm going to do this later. It's also laziness. Laziness and perfectionism. Fine line. Um, who knows? But, uh, you know, instead of beating myself up, I can remember that having compassion with myself actually helps me have compassion for other people and also maybe uh, helps other people have compassion for themselves as well. So all of that to say, I'm not apologizing but I am acknowledging that this is an episode I recorded long ago and um, I'm releasing it uh, today and also I'll let you know where I am currently I'm sitting in a caravan in the middle of nowhere I'm on the English countryside uh in Chesterfield you can look it up I'm in the village of Wingleworth Wingle Winker god I don't even know what it's called anyways that's where I am currently um And don't worry, there will be plenty, probably seven episodes from now, I'll be in Wingerworth. (laughs) Uh, But for this one, I was in New York City with the fantastic, wonderful Kimberly Stewart. Uh, Hello, Kimberly. Thank you so much for doing my podcast with me. And uh, I'm really excited to introduce you to everyone else who's listening. Um, So Kimberly is an improviser. She's an actor, writer, writer and a director who is based in New York City, and she currently is producing a comedy show there. So if you're in New York, you should definitely go see the great things that she's doing because she produces this show called We Remember the 80s, and it's all for... It involves improvisers who uh, are over the age of 35s. uh, The age of 35s. They're over the age of 35, and they actually remember the 80s in a real way. And their next show is on... It's every third Monday of the month. So the next show is December 17th and it's at auto shrunken head in the East village. You should go check it out. They have a great musical act called fantasy grandma. I'll put all this stuff in the show notes. So don't even worry about it, but it's going to be great. Um, and our conversation, it was so wonderful. Re-listening to it today. Really so many helpful nuggets to, that I'm walking away from it with. Um, In 2012, uh, Kimberly wrote and performed an improvised one-woman show called Laura about coming to terms with her sexual abuse, and she's currently writing that as a screenplay. And in this episode, she discusses how comedy and also creative outlets helped her process her own trauma around sexual abuse, um, as well as... Experiencing PTSD related to 9 11, uh, which was really powerful. And not only that, we talk about other things as well, uh, (laughs) like cars. Anyways, there's lightness, there's heaviness, there's lightness in the heaviness, as there always is. I really don't need to say anything more to introduce you to Kimberly, but I, again, am grateful that you're here and. I hope you enjoy the show. Bye bye, or and more like hello. Here you go. Developing original
1: work because I've worked on a lot of plays. Um, with you've people. written, you've done a lot of. Um, I have written some things. I've never really produced it. I've directed a lot of original work because I went to a school where we did a lot of original work development. So I came out working with different people. Um, where did Horton. you go to school? Actor Studio Drama School. Cool. So in the city, I spent a lot of money. Uh, I'm a slave to New York. I need to make the dollars here so I can pay those bills. Yes. I'm not laughing. I'm crying. (laughs) But yeah, it's just what it is. You've got to pay the bills back. Yeah. And I did a lot of like, a lot of like, I don't want to even call it basement theater. It's just like you're in somebody's basement like living room and people are like hearing their scripts for the first time and you're like talking it through and you're like, this is what, you know, if you're putting this up on a stage, this is what I would pull from it. This is where I think you should look And the, and the writer is still just in the fishing expedition. Like they've written a draft and then they write another draft. Theater is very different from film in that way. Like the playwright has absolute creative control in many ways of what they write. And even Mm -hmm. once they get into the process of producing, they're still, they still have a tremendous amount of power over who gets cast, over a lot of different things that happen Mm -hmm. um, in that initial production. And so, you know, building a working relationship can become really imperative if you're directing because it's how you, it's how you shape the story and the way you think best serves it. But it should never... Erase what the playwright is intending to do, which is, I think, something that some directors lose sight of because filmmaking is you as the the author, you as the puppet master making all the decisions. So it's exact flip of of power. As the writer, you have no power. You write the script. You sell the script. <laughs> They're gonna do whatever they want to that script. It may not look like whatever you wrote ever again, but you took the cash and you you're happy. You got your right?
0: check. You got out. And yeah. you're it's you it. You made it. Oh, but a yeah. playwright
1: is going to sit there and still be angsting over a word. Like, throughout the entire process. process. So it's a wow. very yeah, different relationship and a very different way of working and very different ideas of what directing is. So,
0: yeah. So now, because I, I know you said you are making the transition into doing more film. Yeah. And what is that looking like for you? Are you working mostly in writing or directing, doing.
1: A little bit of everything. Like for me, what it looks like, what it looks like in the last year has just been writing stuff, filming stuff, and editing stuff, and then not showing
0: it to anyone. <laughs> you're, like, <laughs> you're like, I do all the things, and then I just hide. <laughs>
1: well, it's like it's a practice thing. Like it I've is, got a, yeah, yeah I've got this uh, piece right now that I've I shot when I was at home. Yeah. There's this thing they do in Detroit where they cruise the streets. I don't know if everyone does it quite like Detroit does it, but it's a thing that people do in that area. And Downriver has an illegal, unsanctioned, nobody-sponsored-it cruise that happens every summer by word of mouth, where people are just driving up and down the strip in their fanciest it's all like middle-aged white guys too, by the way, with like $100,000 And they're
0: cruising, meaning they're just cruising in their cars. Yeah,
1: letting people look at them. People like go out and line up on the street and watch people. To look people, at their cars. To watch histor- like these historical hot rods. And oh, like, okay. They're like all, oh, but they can just be really nice, you know, cars. It just depends. I met a guy with a lowrider who was like a 45-year-old car, like factory worker. Like, yes. you know, I, all of his money is in that car. And I was like, do you make it bounce? And he goes, It's not street legal to do that and he said it very sincerely and I was like where do you bounce
0: this car why do you have it where do you bounce the car yeah if you're not going to bounce it at the cruise when yeah
1: why do you do it why why
0: do you have the capability it's just so sad that you're not bouncing your car yeah
1: no Yeah. yeah so we had a lot of like me and a friend went and we just talked to a bunch of people and most of them parked their cars along the way and you can go up to them and talk to them and look at their vehicles. And, it's, and this is not sanctioned. Like nobody's like Kroger's got a sign up that somebody that worked there put up, not that they actually plan to have
0: the event there. And they're all like, if they're like an unofficial sponsor of the unofficial event. Yes.
1: There's like so no, and it's a wooden garden stake sign. This is down river cruise. And like literally people are just filling the back lot. Yeah. And then across the street, you've got people lined up watching the street. And this is just one section of it.
0: Oh, like, it's going
1: all the that's... way up from
0: miles to like, the, to, like, the edge of Detroit. Wow. Wait, so you, so this is related to a film project, though. <laughs> this is related. So you went there and just, like, interviewed the people doing it.
1: Yeah, just talked to people and that's just great. shot stuff.
0: By the time I got home, I realized that
1: I, I will never be a steady enough operator of my iPhone to ever get anything that's super usable at all is chunks um and also that I, I really should have brought my recorder with me we didn't have a recorder we were just oh like for audio even, you mean yeah it wasn't yeah. even a plan it was one of those things where you get there and you're like why did I not bring my equipment with me this was only supposed to be an ice cream run and this is amazing and we literally spent two hours just roaming the streets filming everything that's and talking great. to people and yeah. then I'm like okay now I have all this footage and I'm trying to edit it into something and it's slowly finding its own like little unique. I found like a, th- like almost like a storyline in it.
0: I feel like it would be like a Christopher Guest style, like mockumentary. Oh, it has. Oh, it has all that potential. <laughs> I feel, I just, that's what I'm seeing for it. And I really want to watch it.
1: Oh my God. It has all that potential because it's, and it's, it's such like an indicative thing of like the Midwest too. Like It's so a Detroit thing. It doesn't matter what it is or who it is or who you're talking to. You could walk up to somebody and be like, what's your favorite vehicle? And they'd probably go, and they'd probably give you a really detailed description, tell you how many, like what the leader of the engine is and like how many horsepower it has. And like, honestly, if they could get the Hemi, they would go oh with Hemi, God. and like, they, and you're like, so you're an engine. And they'd be like, no, I'm a school teacher. I teach kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. How long were you in Detroit? I grew up in Detroit. I was born and raised outside of Detroit. Um, and I, uh, downriver, a place called Riverview, Michigan, and it's really literally, it's a factory worker town. Um, and there's some pe- folks with money, but it's mostly people who work in the factories or work in the industries around it. And then I went to Wayne State in downtown Detroit. And then I sort of, I never officially had an apartment, um, because that wasn't a thing when I went to school there. It was a commuter campus, and so I would kind of go back and forth between my parents' house and whoever was letting me couch surf at their
0: apartment that way. I week. mean, it's, you got to be the homeless college student, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's great. How far away was it from home? 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. It I wasn't. Went, it's, it's going to college like feels, it doesn't feel like you're going to college if you're at home. Maybe.
1: Uh, you know, when I was doing, I was doing theater and I started in the theater program mm. from day one. So like, the first thing I did was I ASM to musical. So I'm at school all day and then I'm at rehearsal all evening.
0: Yes. <laughs> so then that's. Yeah. Great. Is ASM to musical after school music? Is no, it, no, it's assistant stage managing. Assistant? I was like, what? Is <laughs>
1: no that? musical occurs without a stage manager who runs the stage and yes. tells everybody where to go. Yes. And then there's like a whole team of assistants. And those are the people that, you know, they might be running the people who have all the props and people might be running all the lights and there might be people that are just dealing with like, but you're just managing the flow of whatever. We put on a lot of illegal productions. (laughs) Wait, what what makes a theater production illegal? Well, we would do, we had a regular schedule of like... Five in the main stage, which was a house built by the by a guy who built the Lent Fontaine. He designed the Lent Fontaine here on Broadway. Okay. And several, I think he still delivered a couple other, designed a couple other houses too. But so it was a Broadway sized house. And we had five shows a year in that. Mm. We had a black box where we had four shows a year in that. They were all school sanctioned and covered by the insurance. <laughs> And then we had this black box that was empty a lot of the time. So we had like 24 to 30 productions that were not school sanctioned projects (laughs) for class because they're class projects and no one's spelling tickets to them. So, um, you, that's amazing. Yeah. So we did a lot of stuff, like stuff that we wrote, stuff that was like, uh, when second city moved into detroit like i remember somebody put something together and threw it up based on stuff they were learning in class like you could do anything in that space the best thing i learned from that and the most important thing that i've always taken with me is you make your own work mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you weren't getting cast in a main stage show okay so you make your own work what do you want to do if they're not giving you the opportunity to do shakes make your own work what does that look like for you
0: Wow, and I love that you're doing that now with your new foray into filmmaking. Yeah, you're just I mean,
1: that's it. Like, I'm just sort of doing it a step at a time and learning what I need to, and then slowly I'll get to the point where I'm like, oh yeah, this should be released, I should let people see this. And, you know, but there'll probably be a lot of projects that I keep to myself until I'm ready to do that, or, and then recut
0: with the experience that that last thing I did gave me to do. Interesting. What, what will be the thing that tells you it's time to share? Mm, two things I've learned tell me when it's time
1: to share it one there's something in the zeitgeist that fits what it is what does that
0: mean like you
1: well um a good example of it you know when a tweet goes viral it's just perfect to the moment Mm -hmm. it just sums it up Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you have stuff and it might not be something you would release otherwise but if it's the right moment Mm-hmm. And it fits what's going on, yeah,
0: drop it. it in. Mm-hmm.
1: And not are things I drop just because I'm proud of them and I think they're ready and I'm like just want to put them out there. But I've learned I do serious things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People don't pay attention to seriousness. It's really funny. People only pay attention to what makes them laugh. They don't mm-hmm. necessarily take it seriously, but they pay attention to it and they share it. So it's like this horrible catch-22 if you want to say something serious. You have to be funny. You've got to make it... F- that's so interesting. And if I you find... make it funny, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. then nobody really understands. Like, then half of your point could possibly be misinterpreted by the
0: person who's laughing. You'd be laughing for totally wrong reason. Yeah. Wow. That's really an interesting point that I haven't ever put into those words. But I think I struggle with a similar thing. Yeah. With like... I think that that's something in terms of like even doing st- like stand up in comedy like a lot of the things I want to talk about aren't that funny you know and it's like how i mean this is like have you watched nanette i'm, <laughs> I'm
1: not I'm, you I'm haven't like, watched it i'm like it's, the one person who does not have a netflix subscription i was subscription. don't worry i was
0: the one oh you, you my dad <laughs> keeps threatening to cancel ours so don't worry i don't like have a an adult <laughs> life where i own my own netflix okay so nanette what one of the beautiful things she says is like you know she makes the point that like when you're doing stand up everything you say has a punchline but some things the truth the core truth of what goes into our comedy like there isn't a punchline at the end like this is this real situation
1: i when i was i used to promote a show called sakapunas which was a comedy show in a bar Mm -hmm. i liked it like the guys who ran it it just became a thing that i did and i drug all my friends too and um And one of the things that happened was I was hanging out at the creek one night and this guy was just back from his first tour. He'd released an album and it had been popular enough to warrant going on like a small comedy tour just to see if he had an audience. And he came back to New York devastated because he was one of those um, ironic hipster guys who did a lot of ironic hipster racism, meaning to be funny, and he found out when he got to the Midwest that mm. his audience was not aware that he was ironic. They thought he meant all of that. So they were laughing at his jokes because he thought, oh, these guys are racist. Like, us." Oh, great. He means what he's saying. Mm. And they told him, <laughs> and he was like, this is not,
0: this is not good. I, this is I'm not making what
1: I fu- I'm making fun of you. Oh, how do I do this? Because yeah. this is who my audience turned out to be. Wow! Yeah, he came back and he was like, "I spent five years developing this voice, and what do I do with it? What do I do with it?" And I don't know what he ultimately decided to do with it.
0: I just mm. remember, yeah, you know, that's yeah, you and. I know this is an audio podcast, but we just both shrugged. (laughs) We're we're like, what do you do? Literally. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I often think about with my own material, when I realize that it's not quite true to myself in the moment anymore, it's because I used to be like, oh, that's joke. I don't like that joke anymore because it's like, I don't think that that's funny. It's like the joke. Okay. Whatever was funny about it, like this, the seedling of truth that's in there, because I think that, everything that's funny comes from something that's true, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there just might be a more authentic entry point into that material. Yeah. So I think it's like the way, I mean, and I'm, I'm saying, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I don't need to throw away all my material whenever I have one of these crises no. of like, this isn't funny. This isn't what I want to say. It's like, no, just now add the next layer of truth that you have into, <laughs> into it. And it'll be even better. Yeah, well, I stuck a pin in something when you said that. Well, go ahead. Let's go pin it. Let's, yeah, well, go, let's go to the pin. <laughs>
1: it's funny because when I was a kid, I used to do a lot of stand-up in the shower. Not not with any idea of what stand-up actually could be, just imitating Amazing. what I'd seen on TV. Yes, and I'd write jokes. Some starts. of those jokes were really good, to be honest. Yes. I did a lot of material on sexual abuse. I was sexually abused. That's why. Um, how old were you when... I, I mean, was sexually abused. I was uh, sexually abused from the time I was 11 until I wow. was 13 by a family friend. Wow. Yeah. It, it's a definitely a life definer. <laughs>
0: yes. Oh my it ca- goodness.
1: It's a really hard time. And it's, it's so often when women, I think if they're going to be victims of sexual abuse,
0: it's a really common age. It's, it's such a form. I mean, it, it, there's never yeah. a good time. There's no, never a good time. No, there really isn't. There isn't. But that's an especially bad time.
1: Yeah, it's when your sexual identity is forming. So it really changes everything you feel and do with your sexuality. Wow. It warps it. And and it's there's really no way. I mean, anything else will change you. But I think that like who I felt myself developing into prior to that, and who I ultimately became we're just as a sexual being we're just very different creatures like i think it would have been a very femmy, very sexual very flirty girl wow yeah girly girl and i'm totally not that now now i wasn't in high school either but that's what i'm always drawn to and i'm always like uncomfortable
0: in it's you're inc- uncomfortable being that yeah
1: yeah yeah and I, it's totally related to being abused right at that particular moment in time Oh
0: wow it just like squashed that part of yourself that
1: was forming yeah or it made it it made it impossible to do safely i understood from what came out of being molested that i had no control over it like there was no easy way to protect yourself well, and we'll come back to this because I'm going to back up and finish my point about sexual abuse and comedy jokes. Because yes, that like, seems like a topic that goes together very, I very love well. that
0: you're like, I'm going to just go straight into coping this with this <laughs> by doing stand up in the shower. <laughs> <gasps> I just have a type five on my like.
1: <laughs> that's seriously. Honestly. That was, <laughs> yes. Oh that my gosh. That was my coping mechanism. It's, that was totally it. Oh my gosh. Um, and I think that's just because I had always been a performer. I'd always been somebody who put together shows and was always like, let's do a thing. We'll put it, you know, we'll get our parents together and make them watch us perform. Yes. Like, I was that kid. Amazing. And so I was just like, I think it was something about speaking to an audience and the audience in my head convincing them what I found was funny, what I was surviving with, that that mm. was the normal thing or that that was the okay thing. Because I don't want to say normal, I don't think I even understood that as a concept at that moment. I just understood being okay with everything that had happened to me and I think that that was my way of processing all of that. And so when I finally did write a tight five (laughs) about sexual abuse, it came out of nowhere and it came really fast and I realized later that The seeds of most of those jokes were written
0: in the shower when I was like 14
1: years old.
0: (laughs) Blowing my mind right now. That's amazing. So yeah, you'll just come into it
1: from whatever direction makes sense. I obviously am not going to do those jokes like I did for an imaginary audience at 14. Yes. It's filled with a very specific kind of other. Yeah. You know, an other that I'm appointing. But I do still do some of those jokes.
0: (laughs) I love that. And I I mean, like, wow. Yeah, that's just so good to that. That's like where you're at in that journey. You know what I mean? Like that you're like, I'm no, I'm still doing those jokes. Like those jokes. It wasn't like I had it all wrong. You're like, (laughs) no, I just know no more. And
1: (laughs) I know what to point at. I know how to change it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I find a similar like I when I first got into stand up. It was right after a breakup, like a really, I thought I was going to get married to this guy oh. and it was like four and a half years. And then I found out he was cheating on me and it was just one of those paradigm shifters. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> quickly we de- stabbed him. We you couldn't see it. It was a gesture. There was a gestural <laughs> and yeah, very supportive stabbing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, right around that time was also when I like developed an eating disorder oh. and did a lot of, I mean, you know, perfect storm, right? Yeah. 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 You got to control something. You got to control something. Might as well be my body. And, um, yeah. Surprise. It doesn't work, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You have to
1: find that out the hard way, usually by skittering somewhere on your chin.
0: There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, so we were doing a lot of skittering and, but yeah. And a lot of that, like it was, never like, oh, I thought this was a good comedy helped me cope with that too. You know, mm-hmm. like it was right after this breakup that I was like, I have to do stand up I had done it one time after like a class in 2012. Okay. And then this was like a couple years later. And I just was like, okay, I have, I had all new material, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was just this creative boon. And then, you know, and also Thinking the way that I processed through this eating disorder thing was like, okay, this is there are things about this that are funny, and I need to communicate that to people, and yeah. it was like so healing for me. But at, at the same time, I'm like, I look back at those jokes, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see why not all of them always landed. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I have I mean, that problem. <laughs> yeah, I'm like okay, Katie, I can see. <laughs> yeah, you have to have the right like, audience still for very really funny, personal, yes,
1: tough material. you have to have an audience that likes you, so you like you have to write a lot of important jokes and that's why I stopped doing stand-up I went oh you mean I have to write three years of crap I don't care about and like pretend to date and like so people know I'm, I need to I'm be not relatable. Damaged, and, like yeah so oh my
0: gosh yeah I know I have it was always that feeling I think any anxiety I had on stage was just worrying about them worrying about me like I was more I wasn't not okay yeah yeah I was just like
1: Yeah, it's funny people and people read into stuff like we'll just watch people read a news article. People will see their whole soul in someone else's behavior Mm -hmm. and you look at them and you're like, no, that's all you. That's you projecting like a movie camera at someone else's life. That's not has nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're on stage and you're the one with the mic, everyone's projecting their issues at you.
0: Oh, that's so true. That's (laughs) such a good point. You're just standing up there as like a them. Yeah. You're a them. Yeah. And that's actually, yeah, that was something that made me realize too, like, Oh, I need to not only, I also have to make it okay to be me. Yeah. I can't judge myself when I'm on stage. I can't judge myself. Yeah, exactly. Because then I'm judging all of them who's, for, who for are identifying with it. me. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent.
1: You, 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 you have to let them enjoy your craziness for whatever your craziness is and. And then go to your therapist and and let them take you apart.
0: And put yes, your you're like together. you know yeah exactly. <laughs> it's a <So>. separate issue. <laughs> yeah, this isn't where we go to process things, but it's relate it's related but not the same. I would <laughs> yeah. say 50% of the guys in open mic really need to meet the therapist first. <laughs> God, that would change so much. I really think yeah, yeah it would really help. I sometimes yeah, just going to mics. And you just want to like give them just some notes on life, you know, just yeah, a little. Just generally, no one can you listen to you and laugh because. <laughs> yeah, well, and there was this really mm. sweet comment. One of he was such a he's such a great comic. He's a younger. I'm not going to say his name because why? It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's uh, but I have nothing but good things to say about him, so I should say his name. Um, but after his he did some material about like kind of needing to break up with this girl that he's not really that interested in you know he just he the it, there weren't any jokes I mean he's he's very funny though he has jokes yeah, yeah. normally but, but he was, he was like really I'm genuinely that right in now. this yes he was like I'm actually in this situation and I went up after him and and just like kind of rattled off so I'm like yeah well you know it's important to just say how you feel and Like, whatever. After this mic, we talked for like 20 or 30 minutes, and he was like, We gave him an action plan. I was like, Okay, like, he had, like, we just talked
1: through. (laughs) So, he basically had got like life coaching where you all sent him off on, This is how you break up with someone and have it not be terrible. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, like, this is how you can do it in a way that's really (laughs) authentic and honest and kind. It's kind for you to be honest (laughs) with her. And we had this whole thing, and it was just, I mean, this is like every conversation I have really does kind of feel like life coaching probably but whatever <laughs> I, well here's the thing here's what I always
1: wanna uh, what here's what I said to a friend in that situation I'm like so if you don't break up with this person do you just plan on wifting into the wedding and, and <laughs> complaining right. about oh, it as yeah. it happens or you got to rip off the... Yeah. Where do you plan on do? Is it going to be rerun?
0: <laughs> like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to at some point, <laughs> well, she's going to be stricken down by a terrible <laughs> disease and we're going to, you know. Yeah.
1: Like not everybody can... Not everybody gets the Seinfeld ending. Your your
0: girlfriend will not lick a poison stamp. Probably not. Yeah. If they... No. Those <laughs> don't even... Stamps are not licked anymore. They're ripped off. They're adhesive. They, they are. Oh my so God. So you can't even kill people that way.
1: Yeah, it's true. I hadn't
0: thought about that. You have to, I I, don't know how we, I'm not going to even start thinking about how we kill people now, but.
1: Well, well, you know, we could do, we could probably come up with five minutes of how to kill somebody, but then that's kind of eerie because we're alone
0: (laughs) in this space together. We are actually, we're in a beautiful Midtown office and we, during this podcast, it's gone from a beautiful sunset to dusk and yeah. almost nighttime and it's now illuminated by just lights and it's so i'm so happy that i'm here right now it's so, like yeah i love this this is my favorite time in the office it's super
1: beautiful you've got you've got Times square and you've got brian park over there and you can just see all the lights and then you've got your uptown and you can see downtown and you just yeah it's really there uh, what am i saying like i'm saying the cardinal directions guys that you can't see at all i mean yes just be
0: jealous but i'll take <laughs> i'll take some pics and post them uh when i release this episode this is great this is giving me motivation to have a promo flyer that involves <laughs> pretty pictures you should i really will it's gorgeous and yeah and i'm leaving new york in a month well for enjoy a very the view i'll so the empire state it. building before you go it's that one's really. It's on the other. Okay, great. Other There's another window. <laughs> you work in a. An-
1: I work for a financial services company. I am an EA. I work directly for. Uh, I work directly for somebody that is a C-level employee. You know, executive is how I'll say it. Yes. Uh, so.
0: And, <laughs> and it's full
1: time. It's totally full time. It's uh, It's totally. It's totally what gives me the freedom to do the things that I love because it's it's not a high stress job. Mm. And when there are things that happen, there are some things that have to happen right away. Mostly calendar stuff. Let's be real. And also the ceiling collapsing this evening was (laughs) also a thing but um generally it's like a very low low low-key job and I'm just here to open the place up and make sure there's coffee and then make sure her calendar is correct and then that leaves me the rest of my life to like focus on my art and it's the dream I love that
0: so you are currently living the dream this is
1: this is the job I I spent a decade Plus telling people all my friends told me this existed in New York. I have to find this job and now I have it where I can just I come come to work. I can pull my stuff out when I'm done with my stuff for here and I can look at the things I'm working on and actually make progress and like deploy my life and maximize it
0: i love i love that i'm so happy for you thank you that's really wonderful that
1: honestly like i wish i had stopped believing people who told me that didn't exist anymore and that wasn't a thing i should have just kept looking for it
0: you're like <laughs> this not is... settled
1: until i found it because it's really what i needed mm-hmm. to be able to to do you can't do something like directing which is managing people and managing yourself and managing resources Um, and being stressed all the time and managing intense other things. Right. You know, so it's, it, this is exactly what I wanted to have.
0: And I love, and it's, and it is freedom and it's not, I know I've had the experience before of feeling like, my day job, I think, and I love that you make the point that it's like, it's an easy job. Like it's, yeah. that's important. Cause like when I was working full time as an occupational therapist, oh. that's a job that requires a lot of creativity yeah. and resources of energy, you know, like, yeah, having emotional
1: 30, energy in, in any so kind of therapy.
0: Yes emotional yeah and just like you yeah you come up with like really specific treatment plans for each individual kid which is what I love about OT it's very individualized but also that's not like you can just have a cookie cutter like you can't go on autopilot.
1: All of those those plans require a lot of time and effort and thought and revision and.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think that was something I hadn't really considered because I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. Like, like why? I was like, why doesn't my brain just allow me to do that and then switch into another mode and do all my creative stuff? And I was like, oh, I actually have no time where I, you my to brain is ever You have to You have to stop. Yeah.
1: When I got into improv, like w- 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 there are a couple of things. When I got into improv, the big reason I got into improv is I had fallen away from doing stuff for so long mm. because I had been working a job where I literally worked all of the time and always wait. So it was just and it was I could never work fast enough to keep up I, there was always more there was always another thing to do At your job. there was never yeah. a slow my old job yeah and so when I started doing improv one of the reasons I liked it is I got the feeling of being creative mm-hmm. of using that part of my brain but I didn't have to commit anything more than the time I rehearsed.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what I love about improv too. That's like not I what just everyone sh- loves about improv <laughs> Literally, just show up, and that's all you have to do. Yeah, yes, I mean,
1: that's that's your li- that's all the preparation you'll ever need for improv. Uh, except if you're good, you'll probably have done other things. Yeah, so, um, and like for me, then it, it became like a thing. I was obsessed with it. I would do it every night. I was doing it like four nights a week. I had different practice teams that met all over the city. Wow. I would just hop in with people and just keep going and keep practicing but it was like all of that wounded artistic direction that had no space Mm. it was it had a place to be and it was like yeah let's be here (laughs) this is great I can do this and feel creative and feel like I'm a valid artist yeah and like that was something that I couldn't do in that job and really there was no space to focus on getting really intentional intentionally involved in say a film project I wanted to do those things but like I was had to focus on keeping my job. My job required me to be so active. So like to me, the big part of like moving into my 40s was getting the finally getting the break to like recognize that I'm now at an age where they're looking for material from people like me. That's amazing, yeah. It's dovetailing with the time when I have the time to produce and the emotional energy to produce good stuff. Yes. And the health to produce good stuff and handle it if it comes. Just uh
0: that's what you need. You need to be able to be okay. Hmm. At every stage.
1: In every stage. Yeah, you have yeah. to be okay with not just the work that you want to do,
0: but succeeding at the work you want to do.
1: Wow. You know, like that's the scariest thing.
0: Yeah, isn't that so true? We're you. F- yeah. Like what happens
1: now? What do I do after this? Hmm. You know the. The, um, I was, like, in high school, I was valedictorian.
0: Me, too.
1: <laughs> I was an overachiever. <laughs> me, too. <laughs> I was not going to be happy unless there was a lot of steps to whatever I was doing. So, like, every time somebody tells me it's easy, I'm, like you're just not doing it with enough commitment
0: you're not doing it with it. you there must be steps you don't know
1: about <laughs> <laughs> we know that we know that you're skipping steps we know <laughs> that's that's how this works and i think the big thing for me is that like realizing one you don't always have to do all the steps but two like <sighs> successes trap us and define us more than our
0: failures do oh whoa let that sink in
1: yeah because it's it's just what happens like i'm the valedictorian it's an identity oh yeah it's a thing when i say it to people it means specific things to them it it puts out a whole list of you know of mm-hmm. expectations mm-hmm. i'm an office manager i'm a secretary what's your expectation now? it's very different mm-hmm. what you expect the person to put forward sure so like you know I think failures, the hardest thing to do well, but the easiest thing to
0: do a lot of. Because
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> if you fail, nobody's going to make you live up to what you say you want to do. Yeah, and if you succeed, wow. then you have to. You can't. You can't. Failure then becomes nearly impossible because you can't fail after succeeding like that. Mm. Especially in a public space.
0: Well, yeah. If I mean, you're lucky, and fortunate enough to
1: reach that level, then yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and I think a lot of this has to do with perception. Yeah. Oh, it's all. Internal I mean, perception. it all has to do. I mean, of all of like. Yeah, and none of this perception. is hard and fast based on reality. No, but it's I. But I mean. On... Yeah, but I mean, I guess, like, that's a really interesting point because you're like, I think it's actually releasing yourself of the need to keep succeeding, even. You know what I mean? Huh. Like. Yeah, it's, yeah, I would agree with that. I also think like
1: I, I kind of went off of an odd thought and I came here, but it's like I also think that like you can redefine those things a hundred percent. And it's most the most important part is figuring out what those
0: things need to look like for you. Like you realizing that you actually anything is possible for what you want to be, and if and you can release anything that's not serving you anymore.
1: Yeah. To me, this is success. This is what I wanted. I wanted to be in New York City making art Mm -hmm. and paying for my bills in some way. Ideally, it would have been nice to have been making my money from my art, but I'd rather make my money from something that's not my art and still have the emotional energy to make good art that I want to make. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's, yeah. Yeah. If you can't have it all, like at least what does winning look like? Winning looks like I get to do the things and say the things I really need to say Mm -hmm. for me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because what if you were in a, what if you were like an assistant director and you were just directing projects you've had no passion for or whatever, like you could be easily technically making money from a creative field and you're just like, well, I have no soul. And yep, it's I feel like that's even more soul crushing than the thing that you're do. You know, that's what's soul crushing is. You're just like, I'm so close. I can taste it, but I'm not allowed not being to true my, to myself.
1: Yeah. I, like I said, I come from a really working class background and so when I got into theater in Detroit theater is pretty wide ranging in terms of background Mm -hmm. in New York it tends to be almost exclusively well-to-do people Mm -hmm. and well-educated people and that limits what people both want to say and what they're willing to hear Mm. which is like if your viewpoint comes from outside of those modes it can be hard to get your voice heard Wow. You know? Yeah. So you're like, I remember getting out of grad school and working with a bunch of people and exactly what you're describing What's my feeling about it. I'm like, if I never speak honestly about where I'm from and keep it to myself, I could work with these people forever, but I would never be allowed to say any of the things that matter to me.
0: Mm.
1: And like, is it better to be honest about being blue collar and maybe that, is something that, you know, I ran into it a few times where people were like, well you're from that background and they literally, you could watch them shut down. Like they mm. weren't willing to work with me anymore. They, they'd questioned my judgment and question that I had anything of value to offer them. Wow. And I watched it happen, I watched it happen to a professor when I was in school. Wow. Yeah, it was also like sort of like devastating. And so when I sat down and I started thinking about what my life needed to be, When I took time to work on it, the big thing that I decided was exactly that. If I focus on doing the work and I only get to go through the motions of it without doing the soul of it, the thing that's pulling me to do it, Mm. it'll kill me. It'll kill me worse than going to work every day and punching a time clock because I
0: know how to do that. I've been doing that forever. Yeah. But then to, yeah, to, to be, oh, going through the motions of your dreams without f- actually living it. Yeah. And being like, this is what's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And oh. it's hard.
1: Cause like it's, it's, and I've seen a lot of people and I've had this conversation in, you know, where people get the golden handcuffs and, but it's the entertainment golden handcuffs. Mm-hmm. They have a job on a show and at least it pays all their bills, but it's not what they really hope for. It's not what they wanted. I used to go to this karaoke joint in um, Queens and I used to sing my face off. And Mm -hmm. one of the guys that was there was a lighting guy that was working on Spider-Man before Spider-Man released when it was still just a big rumor about how bad everything was going to go with that show. Yeah. And it was like I would show up because I needed to sing to feel whole and he would show up because he needed to sing to feel whole. Um, we're both coming from miserable
0: jobs that is amazing yes (laughs) and you're just like (laughs) yeah what a way to connect with people yeah Yeah, just because somebody has the thing on their resume that you think that like you are the only person that knows if it's resonating with your truth and you know when you've made it people ask that all the time like oh, how long are you going to give it in New York before you like quit and it's like never like I'm never going to I mean like what would I gain I mean
1: I'm 40 I'm not gonna have kids what would I gain if I went home like if I were gonna go home what would it give me
0: like if you're not going towards something yeah like I it's just what am I retreating to mm, I took this embodiment yoga class recently which was so great it was all about the self but I thought it's kind of what we're talking about a bit because your self is It's only, it's it's all the things that you know to be true about yourself so far. Yeah. And that's what the self is. But then there's, you also are connected to this spirit. Like that, you know, the feeling when you're connecting with someone. Like I feel it right now. I feel like we're connecting with each other. And that's like a, a different... It has nothing, and it doesn't have anything to do with, I think, our socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. Or you know, I mean, it probably has something to do with. Oh, similar. We're both valedictorians, so maybe that's the only reason yeah. we're friends. No, but <laughs> there's another. There's we're another. We're just level. overachievers,
1: so we know why we're crying. We over get the fact why we're crying. post it
0: straight. It's so funny. Well, I, yeah, and it's it's just that idea that like, oh, what else is possible? It's, yeah. I love that as, like, a, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, for me, like, in my life, I've had, like, when I moved here for graduate school, I moved here in 2000, so the beginning of my second year was
0: 9-11,
1: which was, it was a, it was a whole game changer. It changed, like, it changed how the city saw itself. It changed the mood and the tone of the city. It's not the same city I moved into. And, you know, I mean, if you talk to people, they'll always say that because it was so
0: just apparent. In what way? How did it how did the city see itself before? Did you see the Muppets take Manhattan? I did not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I went for that one because there's like this energy in it when they're talking about Manhattan. And it's like, yeah, we can do anything. It's the big city and blah, blah. And you've got this vibe with like this innocence and this energy and this aggressiveness Mm. and this sort of like flat, like the the brightest colored hair you could imagine kind of Mm. like feeling. Mm -hmm. And then it was like that brightly colored hair had to go to an office and get a real job got it it was like Mm -hmm. all of that was taken away like and the energy became Mm. the energy you feel now it's like we can do it but First, we'll wait in line for the security check. We can do it,
0: but we're going to wait. For, <laughs> we're going to wait for the check to clear. Yeah. And then we're going to just do our dreams. We're going to, we, yeah. we can do it. <laughs> yeah,
1: It doesn't have the same, there was a feisty mm. energy to the city and it doesn't have the same kind of energy. So mm. it was a, an interesting time to be in school. And I ended up developing really bad PTSD. So I, I honestly spent
0: my twenties just unpacking that. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Interesting year to move. Yeah, exactly. That's, that is wild. It was like
1: really like of all the things like that have happened in my life. It's the incident that changed the direction of my life that I wish I could have handled it differently, but understand there's literally, literally nothing I could have done to have changed it. Like it was fully out of my power, how it affected me and how, Mm. how long that lasted.
0: Isn't that, yeah, when you're just like, I wish I could snap out of this. But, yeah, there's no snapping out of something like that. No.
1: You kind of have to, like, with PTSD, you're living in it. It never ends. Wow. Like, And that's the thing that really, like, it took me a long time in therapy and even time after therapy to really kind of come to a conscious understanding that, like, for five years of my life, I always felt like it was 9 11 it wow. never really wasn't like, and when it would recede, it would come back. If anything triggered it, wow, yeah. So it's a, it's a hard it's a hard way to live. Like, if I die young, I'll know that the stress of that has a lot to do with it. Wow, <laughs> and because it, it's just you know the wear and tear on my body would have to from all that kind of just
0: tension. Kind of tension. You're holding so much. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean,
1: it just so it changed the course of my life. It also changed how much. I was willing to suffer too in terms of like
0: pursuing the things that I love. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I don't keep putting my mic to my mouth. No, I just want it. You're like (laughs) saying such beautiful things. I just want them to be, I'm going to be so sad if I can't hear them later. (laughs) (laughs) Like,
1: yeah, but that was like the thing is like, I realized like coming through that, like uh, one, I didn't have the bandwidth either in my early twenties to do a lot of things I had intended to do Mm. or would have done. And like, when I came through it, the biggest thing for me was just making sure that I got to enjoy the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It, it made me prioritize that, like, what do I want to say? What are the most important things to me to say? What do I want to leave behind that people know that I was here, mm-hmm. and that I had observed? And these are the things that I observed that I think other people will be enriched by knowing. And that's hard to convey in comedy, as much as I love comedy, and mm-hmm. comedy opens the doors for people listening to you. It doesn't always open the doors to people really hearing what you're saying, mm. you know? And it's it's been this constant sort of, I love comedy, but I can't dedicate the time to it because I'm also choosing then to not express the things. That I want to really say. So I'm always trying to find this balance. Yeah. You know, like I'm writing a screenplay about sexual abuse. I wonder mm-hmm. why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah. And, you know, I've spent a long time working on that story in various forms, trying to both work through the feelings that I have about being a victim of it that are very real, and then also come to terms with what I feel about it that I feel is just not understood or appreciated. And mm. it, it ends up applying to other things. Like, you know, the, we were talking about Louis CK. <laughs> right.
0: Oh, good. Like, Glad we're sneaking him in.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I yeah, found yeah. a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here he is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Here he just, arrived. sexual abuse. Funny that <laughs> yeah. this is the topic. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's a nice
1: comedy. Like, you know, nobody thinks he did something that terrible, but, did it in a way that abused his power. He did it in a way that abused the women who worked around him. If some guy did that in your office, you'd never work with him again. Mm. And you wouldn't want to either. You'd be like, this isn't the place you'd do that. Right. So, you know, I, I, there's that constant, like, way this, that men find to forgive and, and excuse that behavior. And it's been this way forever, but as far as I can tell, like when I, I told my therapist that I had when I was like 14 or 13, excuse me, when it ended that, that I was being molested. That's how it ended. Mm. And so she reported it to a social worker, which is the required legal, you know, mandatory report. And so it ended with my parents having conversations with police, and I grew up in a small town. So everybody knows everybody. The guy my dad's talking to is a guy he's coached teams with, there's a comfort level, and the coach, team, friend, officer says to him, you know, we could take it to court, but he'll probably not get convicted. You know, even if they believe her, they'll look at her, and they'll think, well, how is he gonna stop himself? like oh she's really god. big breasts. That was what they thought a jury of his peers would think oh. in 1988. What? Yeah. Like oh. if you put if you put me on the stand at 13.
0: And did you hear this? Did you hear this My father were? told me? What? <laughs> oh my god. I I think
1: he told me cuz he 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 wanted to discourage me from pressing charges. And mm so wow. i've never forgotten it um, of course not that's traumatic in and of itself but that's it's yeah. also totally like every experience i've ever had with a man when it is comes down to reporting about sexual assault sexual abuse sexual harassment
0: any of it <laughs> like this. Is this very like good. what's the what's the point yeah what, there's like,
1: a ve- like it's the same it's just the same experience it's they find a reason to
0: make it okay mm-hmm. or there, to make it like, yeah, just minimize it. It's been so, yeah.
1: And I don't, I
0: don't remember if this is
1: something my father said to me in the moment or something that was said to him and he repeated it or something that my therapist said when we discussed it later. But there's this thing that sticks in my head that just stands out. They do it because they've done enough things in their life that they don't know how a jury would find if they were asked the same question. I want to say the cop said it. That mm. it's easier to find that guy not guilty than it is to
0: question whether they did something wrong. Wow, that's a truth bomb.
1: Yeah, and that, I mean, and I, I I do believe it was the police officer who said it. Wow, and I mean,
0: I think that's one hundred percent true. Yeah. And I, oh, I think it's I it's, like, think it's just like what we were talking about with with like up. They see you, they see themselves on you. A jury is going to see themselves in that chair, mm-hmm. and if they're putting themselves on trial, you better yeah. They're if not coming to terms with shit. And we already the, see how hard men struggle to
1: understand how not <laughs> how obeying like people's body autonomy. is. like that. Right. That's like a thing I have to do. You mean I
0: can't just oh, touch you? What I can't just oh, I can't even like. <laughs> what? I can't just look at you and comment <laughs> on your boobs. Why would I lose my job for that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get fired. Yeah. Everyone's freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's wow. I'm really sad that we have to end our conversation soon because i'm having i mean obviously i like this is fun for me um, <laughs> i was like this it's such on this, a like, dark conversation right this now this very literally physically dark because of the, the the lack
1: of lighting the lack
0: of lighting there's no lights on we're just lit by yeah we
1: just like let
0: the light of the sunset it's beautiful it's really beautiful um and also yeah i love, also, yeah, I love it. um thank you so much for you're welcome being willing to open up about your life and your and I'm so happy that you're in such a good place where you're making the things that mean something to you.
1: Can we work in that conversation on disability or we won't have any time?
0: Yeah. We're going to work it in right now. Cause we're <laughs> ending on a note. Of, <laughs> we can have, let's, let's end on, Let's do, let's do even less than five minutes, but listen, there's a huge problem that we're going to solve in five minutes. We're going to try. <laughs> we're going to try because New York and also entertainment is not a very accessible. No, it's not. Place. It's and so funny
1: because we were talking about this at the top and then like, uh, it's like, yeah, I was actually thinking about it because I do so much stand at so much improv about, um, because this was one of those things that was said to me, they were very excited at UCB when they got that new theater, yes, over in Hell's, Hell's Kitchen. Kitchen. Mm-hmm. One of the big reasons was accessibility. Oh wow! So I went, and it was great. You came, you could come right in. There was there was an ex, there was a ramp at the end of it. You could come in. You could come in directly. There were two rows that were on the floor, and you could sit. And as I sat there and I looked at the stage that was at eye level, <laughs> I thought, "This is great." But if I were performing, how do I get on stage?
0: Oh, my gosh. Is the stage
1: accessible? Is the stage accessible? (laughs) I don't know. Oh. I haven't done any shows there yet. I have not asked anybody about it. Um, Wow. But that was the first thing that went through my mind is if I were a student and everybody kept bragging about how this place was accessible. And the first thing I saw was this. And the second thing I saw was The Beast. And the Beast is not an accessible stage. No. <laughs> at all. There's like, when I injured my knee, I had just, the, the first time I blew my knee out, yeah. which is why I'm on a cane, I was doing a, my 201 show there. <gasps> and so I had to wow. climb those stairs and hop up and then kind of like hide it as I like went up the stage to like take my spot. And I was like, oh, why isn't there any, like nothing, nothing to make it easier at all? There is no, like, yeah. If you were really in a chair, if you really need an assistant device beyond a cane to get anywhere, that was the first thing I saw is, oh, they don't want me to perform here. Yeah. They just want me to come and see shows.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. This is a very accessible theater for the audience. Like, we're (laughs) not. Wow. I mean, I think.
1: And it's the visual of it. It's not that I, I don't know for a fact that the stage isn't accessible. It's that the visual, given what
0: they said, was so, like, Oh man, <laughs> yeah. You mean like just the fact that it was eye level, and you're like not. I'm like, it's I knew not ideal. instantly. I'm
1: like, unless there's a ramp in the back, and I'll I'll like hold off judgment. Maybe there's a ramp in the back. There's
0: back. a there might be a ramp. There in the might back. be a ramp. We're in the not. Back. Yeah, we're withholding. We don't the know final we don't know. Yeah. But
1: I like dawn on me that like if you're gonna say something like this, what really matters is your accessibility to the performer. As a school of performers.
0: I'm like, that's... You're trying, but not hard enough. Not Not understanding what
1: what the point of accessibility is. Right. (laughs) How
0: are we going to fix it? How are...
1: How, How do you fix it? Well, you know, don't use bars for shows. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, that, that, that's another well, place that's never.
0: New York is in a, as a city is not very accessible.
1: It's terrible. I mean, I, there's a lawsuit right now going on to force them to retrofit elevators, I think, into mm. a number of stations wherever they can actually be fit. And they still, in doing all the fittings, they redid Astoria stations. They didn't add elevators. Not one of those stationary no. boats and, and put. And in. those
0: stations have so many stairs. I mean, like they there all. There are like do. three flights of There's stairs. There's so many. Yeah, <laughs> wow. I take it. I
1: take a bus now to avoid that.
0: That's oh how many gosh. stairs.
1: It's like at the point where it's like I need my knee to last a few more years, so I'll take an extra hour to
0: get home on wow. the bus. Wow, is there like a forum like that is like the underground way of getting around? I'm sure there is. I'm yeah. sure that there are threads
1: if you're in like. I just sort of f- figured it out. And when I run into people,
0: we share information.
1: Yeah. Like people with canes in an elevator will actually like when they get past bitching about the smell, which is we pretty. We do I it feel all-
0: like I've been in an elevator with you and there was <laughs> literal human feces in it. And we we're just like, I, yeah. yeah,
1: it just happens. You got to get used to it. This oh is a bathroom gosh. for the homeless. And I'm here. I need it to get upstairs. No, we need
0: to do something about th- our five minutes on the podcast is not going to be enough, but we <laughs>
1: <laughs> will do. I just had to tell that story about you because it killed me. It literally, I was like, I was really going in there like primed to see something. That well, when amazing.
0: also you have dozens of people coming to you like Kimberly, you're going to love this. It's so accessible. And it's like, do you know what that means? <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like, I'm like, dude, if I'd if I if I'd still need somebody to pull me on stage to get up on it, that's probably a sign it's not actually accessible.
0: Um, There you go. Amazing. Thank <laughs> you so much for doing this with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was lovely. All, All right. right. We'll see you next time. Okay. <laughs> hey, just kidding. It's me again. I uh, wasn't ready to say goodbye. I just wanted to add a little addendum and clarification because I've spoken with Kimberly since... We recorded the podcast and if more information, I'm just going to read what Kimberly wrote to me because it's more articulate than anything I could try to paraphrase. So, uh, so to clarify what was said in the podcast, it's important to say that UCB and their new space in Hell's Kitchen is not unique in this issue of accessibility. It's definitely a bigger problem. It's just such a straightforward example that it's easy to use them. And people are excited and proud to show me to the handicap seats at UCB, Hell's Kitchen, and that's great, and it's great to walk in, and if I use the ramp, there are no stairs between me and the show. I appreciate that so much. However, like most people in the audience at UCB, I am a student, and I'm watching those shows, imagining myself on stage. I did a class show there last week. I wasn't surprised to find that there were three stairs to the stage and probably not standard since they're part of the stage rather than the building. There is another entire flight of stairs to the green room where I need to leave my coat and things. So to perform, I must climb a flight of stairs twice so it feels like they care if I'm in the audience but not so much on stage. UCB isn't the only theater like this. It's just such a clear example given the direct connection between the audience, student body, and performers. To me, when comedy theaters want to act on accessibility issues, they need to address them at a student-performer level at a minimum. Then, because of the overlap, it will take care of accessibility issues for the audience. I am thankful to Kimberly for um, speaking out about this, and I want to definitely amplify her voice and message to raise awareness about this issue. We are clearly missing the mark. We're missing the mark in a lot of ways. Um, So thank you, Kimberly, for also being so thoughtful as to follow up on our discussion and spread that awareness. Uh, So thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you Next time, hopefully tomorrow, I'm going to give you another episode tomorrow. Oh, God, I'm promising too much. Okay, Uh, talk to you later. Bye.